Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. My guest in this episode is Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis. I first discovered Michael's work about eight years ago, and when I first looked at it, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Now, the way Michael uses momentum to help identify turning points in various asset classes, markets, and even individual names within both is unique. And it, I have to say it took me a while to understand not only how it worked, but more importantly, how effective it was in picking important inflection points. Michael recently sent out a report which suggested a major top had occurred. So I wanted to bring him onto the podcast to talk about how his analysis works and what he's seeing currently that has his radar on high alert. Now, hopefully, as you listen to this podcast, it will be as smooth as silk. However, behind the scenes, Michael and I had some huge technical problems in recording this. So apart from thanking Michael for his patience, I must apologize if what you're about to hear is a little disjointed. Rest assured, I'll get the technical issues squared away before my next episode, and Michael will hopefully be kind enough to come back and visit with us again as things unfold. So with all that being said, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Oliver. Michael, welcome to the podcast, mate. It's been a long time since we've seen each other in person. For reasons I'll get into shortly, I've, I felt like it was a, a very sensible time to have a proper catch up with you and uh, and hopefully give people a sense of who you are and what you do. So so thanks for taking the time to do this. This is great. So look, um, what I'd love to start with is there'll be people listening to this that, that aren't familiar with your work. So I really want to give people a sense of what you try to measure, how you try to measure it, and and the reasons that you decided to go down that road. Because I've spent a lot of time over the years looking at analysis, and and I have to say, yours has always, since I've very first found it, been very unique to me. If you can uh, have gradations of unique, which I don't think you can, but anyway, we'll leave that argument for another day. So perhaps just give us a, a backstory of your methodology, how you came to it, and MSA in general. I think that would be a, a great platform to build from. Sure. I was in the futures markets as a broker with EF Hutton in 1975. That's where I began. My background was political philosophy, so I knew nothing about technical analysis whatsoever. But I did know about gold. Gold was legalized in January of that year, traded on the COMEX, and it happened to be that the head of the EF Hutton Commodity Division in New York was also chairman of the COMEX. Got him, David Johnston. Okay. So I worked, I apprenticed under him. He was a rudimentary type technician, you know, price chart type stuff. And I, I learned that. And, um, but I evolved over the years a momentum based method where I would take price, let's say daily or weekly bars or monthly bars, and I would plot them on an oscillator in relationship to certain moving averages. Now, by that, I don't mean overlay a moving average on a price chart. That's simplistic stuff. Everybody does it. It's, it's next to meaningless. Instead, I would oscillate price in relation to the moving average to see how momentum was zigzagging compared to the price zigzags. And quite often, it was a different picture. And often, in fact, almost all the time, momentum, whether you're looking at short term to long term, would tend to top or bottom before price would indicate the same thing. 
So it would give an early warning of a trend change. Uh, in 1987, I caught the crash to the downside. And I did it via quarterly momentum, meaning I measured each monthly bar of the S&P and the Dow at that time in relation to the three-quarter moving average. And boy, when you looked at the price chart, all you saw was an upward arcing price chart. You know, it's hard yeah, to yeah, even draw yeah. trend lines. But on momentum, it was a floor. It was a repeated floor over about three years where they come down to the same level in relation to that rising three-quarter average. And they finally broke it in the first week or two of October. 1987, before the crash occurred. The crash occurred, boom, 35% drop in a matter of a week or two. Okay. That sort of smacked me in the face. It said, hey, you know, you, you need to expand on this. You need to apply it elsewhere. Right. So I began to apply momentum to other markets. Now, there's an underlying logic to that that is not technical. It's fundamental. And that's this. We all know that fiat currencies that we measure our assets by, whether you're in Japan using the yen or Euro using uh, Europe using the euro or the U.S. using the dollar, you measure your stock. How much is it up or down? But the underlying unit that you're measuring by changes very fluidly because it's a fiat currency. And as we all know, those money supplies grow like crazy. In fact, over since 1959, the U.S. M2 money supply has basically doubled every decade. So, you know, that means if you own something at 10 bucks and 10 years later, it's it's uh, uh, 15, you're not up. You know, you're down in right. re real right. value terms. Okay. By converting it to a momentum chart and measuring it versus the mean, in this case, let's say a three-year average or a three-quarter average, you're not totally separating yourself from that fiat unit of measure that's a rubber yardstick, but you're somewhat distancing yourself from it by using a mean that is determined by what? The action of the underlying asset. So if you have an asset that's rising sharply, so too will the underlying moving average. So the mean against which you're measuring, like a three-quarter average or three-year average, will rise with it. That somewhat compensates for, not totally, the constant devaluation in the money unit, okay? So you get a different visual technical picture from momentum if you oscillate price versus a given mean. Uh, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates, major asset manager in the world, who's not a gold bug, about six months ago said to people, listen, quit looking at the price of the value of your stock Pay attention to the underlying value of your money unit. He nailed it. He had finally come up with the uh, underlying assumption that we're, we operate on yeah. uh, and have for years. Now, we've done it for about 30 years, and we, we have institutional clients. And we also have uh, – it's a fairly high subscription cost. We have a lot of individual investor clients. Uh, we analyze all four asset categories. That's be debt instruments, stock markets, foreign exchange, and commodities with an emphasis in the commodity area on gold and silver. But anyway, that's the methodology. That's why it, it's different from just looking at a price chart. We think there's a better rationale looking for that. In fact, the Wall Street Journal did an article on us, and I think it was late 2015, 
and they tried to explain our method, but basically they they summarized it in about a sentence, what I just explained over the last five minutes. Anyway. That's precisely why I wanted you to get to do it, because look, it's it's not straightforward. But there's a there's a lot of people who think about things in terms of precious metals. There's a lot of people that want to look at the performance of asset classes versus gold rather than in in fiat terms, because for that exact reason, right? It 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 just gives you a more grounded anchor around which to value assets. Um, but the idea of using momentum ha- has fascinated me from the first time I came across your work, because it, particularly in recent years, you know, where momentum has been such a driving force of just about everything, right? So talk a little bit about the, the, the different timeframes you use and, and kind of how you decided upon those and what the different timeframes tell you. Well, when you measure trend via momentum, you can measure via short-term, intermediate, and long-term. If you're going to measure short-term, which we don't tend to do in our reports, we tend to emphasize more intermediate to longer term. Uh, we don't try to provide day trading type information, <laughs> but uh, you can measure, for instance, the daily action of the S&P in relation to a three-day moving average. And when you plot it on a chart, you know, how much above it that average is it that the today's high, how much above it at today's low, where's the close? And you get, get an oscillator that looks different from the daily price chart of, let's say, the last four weeks. Um, and that's helpful. That would be the timely tool to use if you're looking for a, a trade that lasts two, three days. You know, you want to sell a top or buy a bottom. But that doesn't tell you the, the, the quality of the, of the trend change. It just says, oh, I'm turning down. Yeah, but it's on a micro level. So right. we tend to look at things, for instance, on an annual basis. We use a, a three-year average or a 36-month average, which is a three-year average that changes every month a little bit incrementally. And we measure, let's say, the monthly bars, price bars, and their relationship to where that average is on an oscillator. And when you plot it, you get a, a, you'll get trend-type action much like you'd see on a price chart. In other words, zigzags up or flat floor, that type of thing. But it will be different from the price chart. So it'll give you a bit of different information and probably sooner in terms of a downturn or an upturn on that larger long-term time scale. So I can I can say with some pride that in our 30 years, we've never missed a major top or major bottom in the S&P. Now, there's some zigzags in between we might have missed, that's true. But using annual momentum, we tend to identify major trend shifts in a market. And we apply that to all all sorts of markets. Uh, Now, if you want to be a little closer up, you might use something like a three-month moving average, which might generate a swing that lasts, oh, three to five months in one direction but not a couple of years, you know, because it's a lesser time scale. So we sort of fit those together. So we look at the annual trend, the quarterly momentum trend, and a monthly momentum trend, and, and try to fit, well, let's say the monthly might be up, but it's contrary to the annual trend, which is negative. So we have to fit those together. Now, sometimes they all get in sync, and that's when you really have a party. Okay, when the trend is, you know, it's very strong in the upside or very strong in the downside. Uh, right now, we tend to have in the S&P, for example, a somewhat contradictory trend. We think that the longer term momentum of annual quality and even quarterly quality has turned down. That occurred in the first couple of weeks of, Feb- of January and certainly into February. 
Right now, though, on a, on a more intermediate basis, we're having a counter trend rally, which is not to be confused with the longer term negatives that have already clicked into place. So it, it tends to help you if you're an asset manager or manager your own portfolio in terms of, hey, is this rally meaningful or is this BS? You know, and it depends on the time scale you're looking at and you you weigh them. You know, if you're in an annual momentum downtrend or a quarterly and it just began, then you tend you should tend to, to ignore counter trend rallies. You should mm-hmm. treat them as counter trend rallies and not mm-hmm. something significant. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in the stock market, for example. So look, with that being said, let's talk about the kind of impetus for this particular conversation, which is a piece that, that you put out. I think it was March 13th. I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure my, my memory's okay on that one. And it was, you know, you, you kind of went through, as you do, a whole bunch of markets. And, and I love the, the way your reports are. Sometimes you'll, you'll just write one on a, a something interesting rather than a broad sweep. But this one was a broad sweep. And uh, it was the most comprehensive piece I've read from you for quite some time saying, this is broken, this is broken, this is broken, this is broken. And it, and it really kind of slapped me around the face this, and kind of woke me up. Because I think, again, to your point, where price is concerned, we've been seeing some chop. And if you zoom out, it, it looks like we've topped out. But still, because of this buy the dip mentality that's been inculcated over many, many years now, it's become much harder to see genuine turns because every turn has become a dip to buy. But there was something about that report and how comprehensive the structural breakdown was to me that really kind of made me sit up and take notice. So perhaps you could walk us through what you saw then, the breadth of it, and kind of then ultimately break it down into into some of the various individual asset classes that you saw. Well, what, what we look at is, for example, over the, we've had a dozen-year stock market bull trend. In fact, more than a dozen years since the March 2009 low. We all know that, you know, what in the hell drove this up so big for so long? Because if you go back 100 years in the stock market, you cannot find any comparable bull market to this one in terms of time span spent and percent gain. And we all know that Federal Reserve has been, uh, you know, a, a key factor in manipulating money quantity of money and the the false pricing of money, the cost of money, interest rates. And they do it primarily to defend certain asset categories, which they deem, they don't say this explicitly, but that they connect with the economic metrics that they supposedly look at, like unemployment, retail sales, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the stock market is one of them. It's, a, it's probably the preeminent one. And so even in 1920s, there was an inflationary boom in terms of monetary policy. Marie Rothbard wrote a book on it called The Great Depression, and he explained the monetary policy, how it took the the Dow Jones from a certain level to a certain level in the late to mid-1920s. And then that bubble burst, and we went down for a year and a half, and the market got decimated, despite the central bank. That was a bubble. Then we had one in, in our last 20 so years, 2000 top was a dot-com bubble. It, but it had only gone up for about five years. In right. fact, yeah. our buy yeah. signal for that, that trend was in early two, 1995. And it, we gave a sell signal in January of 2000. 
And finally, in late 2000, really started to come down after counter trend rallies, uh, despite the fact that the central bank tried to fight it. Okay, But you've got to look at monetary policy as a driver of the stock market. Right now, we've had 12 years of incredible monetary policy by the Fed, the ECB, and the BOJ. So in our fundamentally, you've created a huge bubble. So what? Okay, maybe it'll go another five years, right? Okay, you don't know. Certainly gone beyond any others. However, annual momentum measured against, let's say, the NASDAQ 100 especially, which has been a leader index, especially over the latter half of that bull market, where stocks like Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple, which are so heavily weighted within the NASDAQ 100 that they constitute like 40, 50% of the index. And even in the S&P, they constitute like 20% of the index, have driven and led this bull market. So what we've been watching and monitoring on a long-term trend basis using annual momentum, meaning measuring monthly action in relation to a 36-month average, are those three stocks, the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500. And in January, Amazon cracked a structure, which is still below, so did the NASDAQ 100, but the S&P didn't, nor did Apple, nor Microsoft. That in February, those other three finally cracked the same momentum trend structure where we could say, okay, you've broken something significant on momentum. Your rallies now are counter trend. Yeah, you'll have rallies. That's the nature of bear markets if you go back and look through history. Uh, but we think enough breakages occurred in the first couple months of last quarter to indicate that that was probably a top that we saw at the December price highs in the NASDAQ and the S&P. Now joined by the three leader stocks. Now there's some other sectors within the market that we're watching that haven't broken. And that when we think when they do break, we'll add to the noise and add to the confidence that, uh-oh, something's wrong here, or rather lack of confidence. Right. The banking sector is one. We know the banking sector led the 2007 bear market before the, even the market went down. It hasn't broken yet. And we understand that, you know, there's an assumption out there among investors that, well, if interest rates go up, that helps the banks because, you know, they make et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's interesting that last week, the S&P had a good week. Banks were down. KBE ETF was down. Struggling right above an annual momentum breakage level for us. On a price chart, you can't see it, but a momentum, there's a floor that goes back like a year and a half. And it's been sitting on that floor, ready to break it. S&P up big last week, down in the banking index. Today's another update in the S&P. Banks are down. Yeah. Okay. What's going on here? Uh, we think if that sector, which is not, it's a jugular sector. We all know that. But it's not, a, it's not one that everybody's focused on. When that sector breaks, we think that you'll see further resumption of downside in the broad market. Um, and we think what's going on in the stock market has great imp great effect on central bank policy. Uh, for instance, the BOJ is, is loosening, if anything. They've said unlimited buying of bonds. They've declared that recently to support the bond market. Uh, the ECB is sort of in middle ground, and the Fed is hawkish. And our bet is that if, if we're right and the stock market is, in fact, topping and headed down in a zigzag manner, which is the way the bear markets unfold. They never crash. Only 29 began with the crash. All the other bears 
were arm wrestling matches. If that becomes more evident to the average investor and to portfolio managers that, uh oh, something's wrong here. And the Fed realizes that. And also look at things like the muni bond market and the junk corporate debt market. They're dropping sharply. Unlike the S&P, which is ratcheted down 10 or so percent from its high, NASDAQ's dropped 20% from its high to its recent low. These markets are precipitously dropped. And these are markets that the Fed cares about. So all this assumption that why the stock market is an important issue now is for all asset categories, because the assumption about the Fed embarking on a hawkish policy that is ongoing is quite possibly a wrong assumption. Because if their market, the stock market, the muni bonds and the junk corporate bonds continue on the route they've been on, the Fed's going to have to do an about face yet again. And if they do an about face yet again, then academicians, economists, major portfolio managers and investors who are astute will say, hey, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're not in charge of anything. And if that assumption ever swept across the markets, we know what the consequence would be. Instead of you can't fight the Fed is you can't trust the Fed. Yeah. And then all the floorboards come out. Yeah, it's such a great point, and I think it's so important for people to understand that. But, but I, you know, I'm, I've been curious for quite some time, this idea of the Fed and their trustworthiness, let's call it. And, you know, our mutual friend, Bill Fleckenstein, and I have been doing this podcast called The Endgame, where we're trying to figure out how all this ultimately plays out. And, and the more this has gone on, the more it's seemed up until this point that all the markets really care about is not the credibility of the Fed, but are they juicing the market? Are they pumping liquidity into the markets? Are they stimulating? And as you just kind of intimated, and I get the same sense, we've reached that point where it might not be safe to just trust that liquidity trumps everything. And if the Fed go back to injecting liquidity into the markets and supporting them, it's safe to buy. Do, do your momentum indicators kind of suggest anything around that? They suggest that what has happened before uh, in my career um, we called the 2000 top. That was January 2000. In fact, NASDAQ did make its high at that time. That was the dot-com uh, market at that time. S&P came back up in August of 2000 and made a new high monthly close, but not a new high price, but it labored up there. But once you started down from 2000 to 2002, the central bank was accommodative. It didn't, it didn't stop the bear market. They could help create the bull, but they couldn't stop it when it turned down. Same thing happened in 2007. The market peaked in October 2007. In fact, in August of 2007, Bernanke came in and, and announced all kinds of new liquidity measures that helped drive the market to a marginal new high in October of 2000. That was the top top. Okay. They fought it all the way down, and they fought it real big, of course, by 2009. But at that point, you'd already dropped the S&P from 1570 into the 600s, okay? And yet the Fed didn't want that to happen and tried to fight it. So our argument is this. If the macro technicals turn, don't assume that the Fed policy is going to stop it. Generally, they create the bubble, and once it comes undone, even if they create liquidity flows, 
The asset managers of the world don't flow that liquidity where the Fed wants it to go. They did at the 2009 low, and it made sense to us because we were bullish at the March 2009 low, technically. In fact, the Fed liquidity helped drive the market up at that point. Fine. The market is in the 600s. It had been 1570. The problem is that once the asset managers make it ascertain that, uh-oh, this is not a great at-risk-reward category to be in, and I think some of them have already made that decision, though they can't rapidly switch. You know, They have to do it incrementally. Sure, sure. Uh, there's evidence of that already. Uh, once the Fed decides, oh, we need to defend this category again, the problem is that the liquidity they create won't go where they want it to go. We argue it's going to go into primarily continue to go into commodities in general, but primarily into gold and silver. So, Michael, you know, I think that's such an important point, um, and, it, and it's one that I think bears repeating now, given where we are in this cycle, that when you're in a bubble and markets are going up, it's very easy to join the dots and say, well, the Fed are injecting liquidity, therefore liquidity makes markets up, therefore it always will. But people forget that every bear market, the Fed have fought every single one, and it's never stopped one yet. So as we look across the asset classes, let's start walking through some, and I'll leave the order up to you, to, to pick out the ones that really stand out to you as, as perhaps the most important ones for people to take notice of. Right now, our emphasis is, again, back on gold and silver. We regard them as leaders of, of the commodity complex. In fact, they were leaders percent-wise back in the 1977 through 1980 bull market. Commodities exploded back then, but gold beat them. Uh, we think we're in a similar situation, but a more historic, more profitable, more cataclysmic, however, whatever attribute you want to assign to it. We think we're at a, a greater point in history of markets and of society and economies, in fact. Uh, gold is anticipatory. It's not a follower. We've argued that repeatedly. Let's take, for example, the recent bear market low. Uh, which was in December 2015. Gold was at $1,060 was the yep. monthly close that month, low monthly close. It's since doubled, okay. But it doubled by the time it reached its August 2020 high. Okay, now, again, gold and silver led the commodity upturn. In fact, gold had already doubled in price before most commodities came up out of the hole. And we defined coming up out of the bear market lows in commodities as of roughly October 2020. We put out a report that had a headline, commodity explosion. Okay, In fact, we haven't had an explosion since then over the last year and a half. Okay, But gold didn't need that information to generate its doubling in price. It didn't say, oh, I need to see commodity inflation, therefore I'll go up. So a lot of folks who are looking around now say, well, how come gold's not going up when we have commodity inflation? Gold anticipates events. It doesn't follow events. Okay, that's lesson one. Now, over the last, especially the last six months, certain particular commodities, such as crude oil and energy prices, uranium would be included in that, have gone vertical. Not natural gas, by the way. Natural gas has gone up nicely, but not exploded. We expect that to be a category to explode. But oil has gone up and wheat has gone up dramatically among the grains. The grains have all gone up fairly dramatically, but wheat especially. Why? Because of the Ukraine situation. In other words, we already had a bull trend in oil. We got bullish at 40 bucks. 
based on quarterly momentum. It since went up to about 80 and leveled off. And then the Ukrainian situation hit the markets and they shot up to 130 very briefly. Okay. But all that news about Ukraine came late. So oil had already turned up simultaneous with the price of any commodity you can name, basically, which means the commodity upturn came as a result of monetary upturn where assets moved from an overpriced category, stock market, and started to move into an underpriced, low-risk asset category called commodities and commodity-related stocks. And we all know what's happened in commodity-related stocks, particularly energy stocks and fertilizer stocks, which we emphasized in the summer of 2020. Most of them have tripled and more uh, well before we ever had the Ukraine situation. But again, back to gold and silver. While oil is now no, no question, it's overheated, technically. Got a lot of bullish news foaming around it. And it, you know, it could go a lot higher. But percent-wise, it's gone from you know 10 bucks a barrel to 130. Okay, if you're joining in now, you're kind of late. Okay. Uh, it's kind of risky. Uh, and that's true with also some of the other commodities that are getting headlines, like wheat, for example. Though I, right. I doubt wheat's going to collapse at any point. It's likely to go much higher because we have a fertilizer crisis that now suddenly the world realizes. But that was not an evident factor that caused the wheat upturn in October, late 2020. It turned up because of underpricing of commodities in general. So the monetary flow, the river flow we're talking about, Asset managers said, hey, you know, I'm going to slightly move maybe 5% of my money out of this and into that. And a whoosh effect occurred. Okay. Now, at this point in the time cycle of the commodity boom, which is likely to continue for a couple more years at least, any drop you see in commodities, sharp drop, like in oil or any other of the hot commodities, don't expect it to lead to a bear market. Instead, expect it to lead to a, a possible trading range at some high price level that will be very uncomfortable for the world economy, which is likely to help spark the world economy into global recession or worse. So the commodity bubble is not going to break. It's going to stay up there. It may stall from here uh, from time to time because of, let's say, oil getting overheated. But when you look within the commodity category, particularly the leader commodities, the monetary metals. What have they done for the last year and a half? They've corrected. So they're not overheated. Gold went from a high of 2070 down to a low of 1670 area, briefly in March of 2021. It's since leveled off into a range roughly either side of 1800. And now we're trading uh, above 1900, and we've revisited the highs again. But remember, gold has been in a, in a sideways corrective range for a year and a half plus. Same with silver. So they're not hot commodities. So if you enter into these markets on the long side again, which we argue should be done based on our long-term momentum studies, we think the congestion process has ended. We're now ready to resume the primary bull trend. You're not chasing a hot commodity you're re-entering one that has cooled off after its first major up leg. Remember, silver went from the teens up to 30 bucks by summer of 2020, well before most commodities ever exploded up out of their holes. So again, emphasis, silver and gold. There's a couple other commodities within the category that are worth attention. 
Natural gas is one. It had a sharp up move into October of last year, well before the Russian event. And since that event is actually pulled back from 650 down to under four, and now it's back over five again, we think natural gas could probably double or more over the next six to nine months in price. Now, to be, to be clear, we're talking about U.S. pricing. U.S. pricing natural, natural gas. gas. In other words, yeah, the, think, the spread yeah. differential between European natural gas and U.S. natural gas is off the page. I think it's like 14 yeah. points difference, 14 fold difference. Plus, natural gas in relation to oil is extremely underpriced historically. But our technicals indicate that natural gas could be one that is a headline maker over the next six to nine months. It's not overheated. It's pulled back since October. So it's, you're not chasing something. And another one, sugar. Nobody's talking about sugar, but I talk about grains. Sugar looks to us like if it goes up about two more cents, it could leave the page on the upside. So we emphasize gold, silver for monetary reasons. And in the commodity category, natural gas and, and sugar look like interesting candidates to do something headline-like. Uh, but as far as gold and silver, why would you buy gold if the Fed's going to tighten? That makes no sense at all, right? Okay. Well, in fact, since the mid-June Fed meeting last year, when they announced they were going to taper, that word came up, there have been four and now five major sell-offs in gold that each constituted more than 100 buck sell-offs. The first four were all redundant, meaning they'd whack it 100 bucks, it'd come back up to the 1800s, they'd whack it again four different times since June of 2021 through early this year, where the guys who've used that piece of information, the Fed's gonna tighten, therefore gold can't go up, right? No inflation, have been wrong. And now gold resurged back to the highs of mid-2000s and had a sell-off back down to 1900. Another, that occurred when? After the Fed rate increase. So again, there's five times that the Fed folks have sold the Fed investors who believe in the Fed. The Fed is, in, 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 you know, like you know, totally potent. Uh, they're wrong. Each time they've been wrong. And we argue this time they're going to be wrong too that in fact, gold senses something. And I think what gold senses is that the asset categories that are essential to the Fed policy going forward are vulnerable, big time. The stock market bubble is in process of breaking. Muni bonds are collapsing and high yield corporate debt ETFs are collapsing. And these are instruments, by the way. You got to realize that that the Fed views certain asset categories as important enough to even buy, physically buy. They bought e, uh, JNK and HYG. These are two ETFs of high yield corporate debt. They physically bought them, put them in their portfolio on the balance sheet. Okay, That's how important they viewed these asset categories. So we know, and gold knows, that if the stock market, if high yield corporate debt if muni bonds start to decline in a way that is upsetting to investors, to portfolio managers, and to them, they will have to revert back to a, an opposite policy of what they've been talking about. So they're bluffing. Either that or they're going to sit back and let it all collapse. And we know that yeah. won't happen. So while the Fed has tried to deviate somewhat from the ECB and certainly from the BOJ, and so you have three central banks in sort of different trajectories. 
the Fed being the most hawkish. We suspect that if we're right on the stock market having topped and being in an arduous process of decline, and these two other asset categories, mini bonds and high yield corporate debt, also doing same, that their, their, their policy change is a bluff. It will turn out to have been a bluff. Gold knows this. The Fed can't simply let these categories yeah. implode. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the. We've talked about the commodity complex and gold and silver, which um, which look to be sniffing out problems and, and look positioned to rise. But let's talk about what you've seen across the major categories that look like they're breaking down. Let's start with the broader indices, particularly the, the Nasdaq and the S and P five hundred. Well, the by our metrics, uh, the Nasdaq one hundred. First off, the Nasdaq one hundred has been a leader index, meaning it led the upside on a percentage basis. It's heavily weighted symbols within that index that constituted like yeah. 40% of it. There's three symbols I mentioned. You know. uh, they're also heavily weighted, but to a lesser extent, the S&P 500. So they explain to a large extent why the, the indexes went vertical. But there was a phase in this 12-year-old plus bull market where instead of rising at a certain rate, both price and momentum went into an accelerated phase. And that began in the summer of 2000. 20 for the Nasdaq 100 and late in 2020 for the S&P 500, where they entered what we call defined as a blow off mode. Now, whenever you have a bull market that's aged several years or more, has been going vertical, but then suddenly goes into a spike mode to the upside that accelerates above, let's say, the angle of price increase that you've seen for the 10 or 12 years, like in the S&P, where you literally take out the top line that goes across all the highs on price and do the same with momentum, then your focus should be on the abort, what we call the abort of the blow-off. Now, how do you measure an abort? Well, in the case of the S&P 500 on momentum, its abort occurred in February, where it broke back down through certain levels on momentum that said, okay, that party is over. For the NASDAQ that occurred in, in uh, January, the S&P in February, but we have enough abort signals now on annual momentum that says to us, okay, that was the party high. Now, the only issue going forward is not that there's a bear market to come, but how does it unfold? When you go back in history and look at bear markets, let's say 2000 to 2002 or 2007 to 2009, Get a daily or weekly chart of those, put them up on your screen and focus on it because they don't crash. They have arduous arm wrestling declines of 10, 15% and lovely rallies that impress you. In fact, rallies that sometimes take out some prior secondary high, which the S&P just did the last week or so. You know, it took out a level that it had stopped it before. So you've had a zigzag that looks like, oh, it's breaking out. That's the nature of bear markets. They don't go from A to Z quickly. They do it in an arm wrestling manner. But there's a point at which we think more and more asset managers, many of whom have already made the decision that there's a problem here, will join that there's a problem here group and start to reallocate assets less from the stock market into more commodity-related stocks, and probably into gold and gold related. Now, I'll give you an example. There's one that's conspicuous. If you're a large asset manager, you don't go buy penny gold stocks, junior miners. No. That's gambling. You know, it's not what you do. 
So you go to the blue chips in the gold industry, and the blue chip of all is Newmont Corporation. It's by far the biggest gold mine. It blew a cork in the last few months and took out its summer 2020 highs, just like gold did. And it's staying up there. And why did that particular gold stock, as opposed to, let's say, the GDX ETF of the gold miners, which didn't make a new high, but it surged quite strongly and positively. Why did NEM, Newmont Corporation, go so strong so suddenly? It's not because of the gold bugs out there who like to buy the cheap stuff. It's because the large asset managers said, okay, I got to have a piece of this market. I'm yeah, move 5% so, so, so here cool. to there. I think that's a statement move by Newmont Corp, that this process is already beginning. So so let, let's look across some other asset classes, because obviously you've also done some work on Bitcoin, which has been fascinating. Um, and so I'm interested to, to hear, before we get into where you see Bitcoin now, your kind of, your history with um, cryptocurrencies in terms of applying this analysis to uh, They became a futures contract in December of 2017. And at that point, we started to pay attention. The cash market is quite loose and chaotic. And uh, once they become, it became a CME futures contract, and Ethereum has also become a Chicago Merck contract. Uh, Bitcoin began trading on the Chicago Merck exchange futures in December 2017 at a, at a bubble peak. And we defined it as a bubble. And uh, the Wall Street Journal even quoted us saying that, you know, it's likely to top. And we it dropped under 5,000. We thought it would go to 5,000. It dropped under there to 3,600. And then formed a bottom such that we called another upturn. It went dramatically higher the next time. April 2021, we saw another top. We called that. It dropped from 60,000 down into the 30s. Uh, and now we're positive again. Uh, but Bitcoin has an attribute that is similar to gold and a good reason to be a Bitcoin investor is that it is a, yes, it's a fiat currency to some extent in, the, in that it's not backed by anything, okay? You don't get a lump of gold or a bar of silver, but it is not infinitely expandable in terms of the supply, the quantity, by the nature of the way it's mined. So it is, to that extent, has a virtue way above the yen, the euro, and the dollar. The government can't push a button and create more Bitcoin. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Now, yes, it is a volatile market, but it does have that underlying virtue. And I think that the younger generation of investors who are primarily the people behind it in terms of trusting it are correct, but they've made a revolutionary, implicit revolutionary statement by doing so. Because what they're saying is, we don't need government monopoly money to do business, to, to store our money, you know, and, and, and maybe putting into bank account in dollars is not really a way to protect my money. Maybe the better way is to put it in Bitcoin because it can't go to zero and it can't be inflated. The swimming pool water doesn't rise constantly. Um, so that, in effect, is a revolutionary statement. We've also found that a lot of the Bitcoin people are also prone towards silver. Uh, you, you could find that on the Internet. Um, and it, they're making this sort of the transition to the monetary metals. Uh, it's a rebellion against government fiat currency. And there was a political problem we perceived about a year ago that the central banks would ultimately perceive that, hey, you know, we got to stop this private money because it's a threat to our control over money. 
you know, if, if suddenly there's a, a money unit that's not governed by us, that 20% of the population of the world uses in transactions or 25 or 30% ultimately, it undercuts our ability to control money and the price of money, interest rates. So sure enough, we've heard it from all the central banks about how uh, cryptocurrencies are criminal, they're used for you know money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it may be too late for them to have done that. I think the cryptos have already exploded in terms of their base, terms of acceptability, and that they're going to grow and grow. Now, there's another issue. Is Bitcoin a better place to be than gold? And technically, that was a true statement. We heard it on radio ads about, you know, Bitcoin's better than gold. I think those ads have ceased. They should have ceased because technically we defined a trend change that was better for Bitcoin than gold from 2017 through about six months ago. And there was a point at which when we measured the spread relationship between Bitcoin and gold, we found a breakdown in that relationship such that it argued going forward, probably over the next couple of years. Yes, Bitcoin can go up, but it's probably not going to beat gold. So we think there's been a shift in the technicals, not only of gold being positive on its net trend, but in terms of its relative performance to Bitcoin. So you, you talked there about fiat currencies and you and you mentioned uh, a couple of them. There's a couple that I specifically want to talk about, and that is the dollar, obviously, because we have to we have to have an understanding of where the dollar is in in the cycle, and also the yen, which has made a, a dramatic move in the last week. So perhaps you could talk us through what your um, what your indicators uh, suggest for those. Mm-hmm. We've been long term negative on the dollar since May of 2017. Dollar index, yep. I'm speaking of, which is a uh, an unusual way to look at the dollar, actually. We, in fact, we're, we're shifting away from it because it's like 50, some yeah. 53% euro, a 17%, I think, or a 13% a yen. So basically, if you had an index where there were 20 tech stocks and one of them constituted 53% of the index, you would hardly call the index an index, right? Okay. Right. Right. Uh, so anyway, so we like to measure euro versus dollar, yen versus dollar, Canadian dollar versus dollar, Australian dollar versus dollar. And we find totally different pictures. But even in terms of the dollar index, we do not trust its sustainability that's tried to rally recently, particularly because of the drop in the euro, because of the Ukraine events recently, has hurt the euro. No, no question about it. Uh, and the yen recently dropped because the BOJ said, you know, we're going unlimited we're going to buy bonds out the yin yang to support the, the, the JGBs. Uh, we can't let the rates rise. We've got to protect our yield curve. So they're going opposite course to the Fed. So that helped plummet the yen over the last few weeks. So that helped boost the dollar index a bit. But even now, the dollar index is where we said to sell it back in May of 2017, namely 99 on the dollar index. Now, if you look at a chart of the dollar index, go back 40, 50 years, you'll find that since December of 2015, you could draw a horizontal line across the action to the present day. We're where we were at the close of December 2015 on the dollar index, just below 99. And it's oscillated about 5% above that and about 5% below that in one of the narrowest ranges for the dollar index for now six years plus seven years of extremely narrow action. So when you see up moves in the dollar and down, they're nothing. 
when you look at the long-term context. And they've, it's really not gone anywhere since then. Now, what's curious about that, again, is the gold situation. If you think gold anticipates and needs, let's say, a weak dollar to gold up, for gold to go up, okay, if you're waiting on that factor, that in December of 2015, when the dollar was where it is now, dollar index, gold is doubled, dollar index has gone sideways. So again, gold is the leader. It anticipates events. We suspect that the dollar index after this recent yen drop, which probably discounted now, sharp drop, and the recent euro drop due to the Ukraine situation. Those are the two most heavily weighted currencies. But when you go out and look at things like the Canadian dollar and the Aussie dollar, yeah. they're in bull trend against the dollar. Uh, why? Prob- probably largely Prices. because they're commodity-related currencies. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, this 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 commodity tug of war, like all the others, it, 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 you know, the interesting thing is when I look through your work, you can see this tug of war happening just about in everything at the same time, which which kind of lends it that air of importance that perhaps sometimes it's difficult to to feel when you look at these things. So let's talk a little bit about the piece you put out where you talked about the call you made about a structural change in direction for the for the big indexes. But also this kind of bear market arm wrestling, I think you called it earlier on. And you, and you showed a great analog with the chart going back to 2007 through 2008 to, to illustrate your point. So talk a little bit about that. And then we'll just get into, to finish, um, perhaps uh, Chinese markets, because I know you've had some thoughts on those as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the, we focus primarily on momentum and, and by our metrics momentum of the S&P and the NASDAQ have broken sufficient structures for for us now to be negative and to think that the top is probably in. Uh, However, we wanted to show to our subscribers, we simply used a price chart. I think it was a weekly. We went back to the 2007 top through a good portion of the 2008 bear market. We didn't show the whole thing because it was off the page. Uh, But how it proceeded and the number of times on the way down in price where you would have a rally that would take out some prior shelf of highs, not the high high, but some shelf of highs that occurred on the way down, such that if you looked at the price chart, you said, oh boy, bull market again. There were two, two major times that occurred on the way down where you would get a teaser rally. And for example, we gave an annual momentum sell signal in January of 2008. Annual and quarterly momentum broke simultaneously then. And the S&P dropped down to a March low. Significant drop, I think it was about 20% or something. You had a rally in May that went up. And in the process of the rally in May of uh, 2008, you got all the way back to unchanged on the year from where you'd closed 2007. In other words, back to our original sell point, in fact. Not back to the price highs, but to our sell point. But in the process of that rally, you took out some prior shelf of highs that looked like, oh, a breakout on the price chart. You lived up there for about two, three weeks, and then you slipped back down through that clear price chart breakout level and headed back down again. There was another similar event in the summer of 2008 where you came up and had a rally that took out some prior highs enough to, you know, if you're looking at the price chart, you said, oh, golly, I'm wrong if I'm short or I should be long again. And it was a, it was a false signal. And then ultimately they beat the hell out of you. Yeah, you know, it took you down to 667, okay, from, from a high at 1570. Uh, so, 
again, you you need to if you're bearish on the stock market, don't assume it's an instant glorious situation. It wasn't in 2000 through 2002. It wasn't uh, it, any other prior bear market, and even wasn't that that wasn't the case even back in 29 through 32. Yes, you began back then with the crash, meaning 35 percent within a few weeks. But then even then, you had a 50% rally back to the high by the spring of 1930. And then you began what we call our arduous bear market, where arm wrestled its way all the way down to like an 80-some-odd percent loss. Okay, So if you're bearish on the stock market, don't assume it's easy dart throw, where you could just buy puts and walk away. Uh, It's going to throw teasers at you. Uh, the main point of the stock market downturn is the implication it has for certain other asset categories and the implication it has for central bank policy. That's why we're so focused on the stock market. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating looking at that, that price chart that you included because um, you, know, you, you, you see what you've just described, a market falling, rallying, beating its old, taking out levels, falling again, and that chart stops before the Lehman event, you know, it, it's down 30% from its highs in that chart, mm-hmm. which doesn't include the Lehman fall. And I think it's, you know, people often forget that. People always think about this Lehman fall as, as the beginning of this, but that Not was really the, end. <laughs> yeah. the culmination of it. Yes, yeah, so I think that's really important. Well, listen, before we finish, um, and listen, I have to thank you for your patience during this, because uh, when we finish editing this, my Jimmy the Greek, who's the, the, the production engineer, wizard editor, no one will be able to feel the joins, but you've been incredibly patient given the internet problems we've had with this uh, recording. So thank you, Michael, for that. Um, but before we finish, let's just um, round off uh, and talk a little bit about um, Chinese equities, which is another thing that I know you've been focusing mm-hmm. on. Uh, we've been very good on calling the Shanghai Index. Uh, that's what yes, we focus have. on, uh, Hong Kong to a lesser extent. But Shanghai has been in a bull market with the S&P over the last several years anyway, of that portion of, of the bull market. So it's in sync to some extent with the U.S. stock market, not in percentage terms, but in general direction. But, but we've defined the action of the last month or two in the Shanghai, particularly if it closes out this month, which means fr- uh, Thursday, at levels it was at last Friday. It will break below certain other annual momentum breakage points that we've defined. Not obvious on price, but obvious on momentum. That says to us, even the Shanghai is now topped. Now, the difference within the Shanghai bull market of the re- past several years is that it's been modest and and certainly not emotional and hot. It's not been a blow-off market. Therefore, to expect it to collapse more than the S&P would be erroneous because the S&P is dropping from a bubble high. Shanghai may be turning down, but it's it, and it may you know go into a bear trend, and that may indicate certain things about recession in China, for example. Uh, coincident with the recession in Europe, which means, of course, a recession here, unless you're naive. Uh, therefore, we focused on Shanghai for that reason, because if its annual momentum does turn down, then it indicates to us yet another major economy, prime stock market is turning into a bear trend. And it's at levels now that uh, if you close anywhere around where you were last Friday, uh, Shanghai is breaking that structure and indicates it's joining the S&P and the NASDAQ and Europe in a downturn. Uh, again, don't expect it to be dramatic, but expect it to be trending. So it's an important factor to watch because it would be it would be a global consensus, so to speak. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly right. Which is why I think you're, you're right that how important that is. Well, listen, Michael. Uh, as I say, it's been it's been a somewhat frustrating hour for you. So thank you for your, your patience. And look, before we finish, and I think this is really important, I'm going to encourage everybody to try and um, and take a look at your work. So if, I don't know if there's um, first of all, give them the means to do that, how they can contact you, and, and hopefully, with your permission, I'd love to include one of these reports, maybe your most recent one, um, for people to download and take a look at, and perhaps. Uh, take a trial of MSA because, as I say, I've I've found it incredibly helpful in in finding turning points. And if if we're looking at the turning point, I think we are. Then um, I think it just makes your work that much more important. So let let people know how they can maybe contact you and and ask you some questions about what you do and get some samples of your work. Sure, our website is Oliver MSA for Momentum Structural Analysis. OliverMSA.com, and uh, you can request a sample lawyer or sample reports. And there's a lot of information on you know, our methodology, uh, our history, and so forth. Uh, so it's it's informative, but definitely request some sample copies. Be happy to supply them. You have a Twitter account as well, right? Yes, we have a, a Twitter account as well. My son runs it. I don't. I rarely visit it, but <laughs> it's quite busy. Yeah. I will, I will, I will put that in the in the outro so everyone knows how to find you, Michael. Again, listen, I can't thank you enough for taking this time and for being so patient given the issues we've had. So, so thank you, and uh, I look forward to you helping me figure out what the hell's going on in the months to come because I think your work, as I said, is going to become very, very thank important. You. Thank you, Grant. Cheers. As I explained at the top of the show, Michael's work is both unique and powerful. So please take advantage of his generosity and contact him to get a sample of MSA's work. On their website, you'll find detailed explanations of how their momentum analysis works. And Michael is, I have to say, extremely gracious and will, I'm sure, be happy to help with any questions you may have about MSA if you email him. To do that, you can visit olivermsa.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Oliver underscore MSA. Or, as I said, send that email to Oliver at olivermsa.com. The two reports about which we spoke are downloadable at the website. Once you're logged into your account, you'll find them underneath the transcript download. And again, I encourage you to take a look at them. That's it from me for another episode. I'll be back again shortly with Bill Fleckenstein and another guest in the Endgame series. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.